0: Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The guard shut
1: the iron door
0: me. Howdy folks and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. Today is a going to be a record-setting episode because today will be the longest episode that I've ever produced on the show and it's going to be fun. Just listen Today, we're going to hear a chat that I had with the fabulous bass player. He's also a banjo player, uh, a guy named Mike Bub. And if you're not familiar with Mike Bub, you know, do your homework. Mike Bub played for, I don't know how long, with uh, uh, the Del McCurry Band bass player. And uh, Mike's a fascinating guy. Got a got 10,000 stories. And we only covered like a thousand of them in this episode. But I hope you enjoy this long, super long chat that I had with the fabulous Mike Bubb. Mr. Mike Bubb, how are you? Brad here.
2: Good, Brad. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Have you already had your coffee this morning?
2: I got a full tank right here.
0: <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on here because, and this is kind of weird. Um, I was born in 1959 and my father always called me Bub. <laughs> that, I was just Bub around the house. My brother called me Bub. My mother called me Bubby. I was just Bub. And and I never really asked my father why he called me that. Of course, everybody's Bub, you know, Hey, Bub, you know, pass me the salt. Yeah. Um, but I was curious. Um, you're and I, my my son who is 12 is now Bub, and right. <laughs> Bub's just a very common thing. He's Bub Junior. I'm Bub Senior. So I don't know what you are, but you're you're the ultimate Bub. But I, I wanted to uh, begin by asking you. Tell me about the name Bub. Where I, I don't think I've ever run across anybody whose last name was Bub. Is it like short for Babinski or something, or is it actually Bub? Well-
2: it, it, it's a it's a actually a German word for a young man, and lad. You know, like a, a
0: that ex- kid. That you know?
2: explains
0: a lot. Now, okay, I understand. my My grandfather was German. I, maybe I get it now.
2: <laughs> now, now the name itself. Uh, I haven't done a lot of research on it, but uh, actually, I haven't done any research on it. But uh, I was playing a gig out in uh, Washington State one time, and a guy come up to me and he goes, "Mike Bub." He goes, "I've been dying to meet you." I'm John Bub, <laughs> and uh, I said, "You mean we're the only two Bubs in bluegrass?" I used to be the only the only Bub in bluegrass that I that I knew of, and uh, now he was B U B B, and I'm B U B, so just a slight variation in the spelling. But um, he told me that in his research, it was kind of a he had a uh, Saxon uh, uh, lineage, which is, um, I guess. English on some hands and and with, with some kind of German influence. So yeah, yeah, you know it's all some kind of European mashup of some kind. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I you know I, I don't run across too many people. Um, now my sister, she she uh, works in uh, she lives in Burbank, California. She works in television and and in, uh, in the motion picture business, and she's a wardrobe supervisor. And so it's kind of funny because her name will pop up on a credit every once in a while. Interesting. And uh, what's and her we'll what's her first name? Her name is Sue. Sue Susan.
0: Bub. Susan Bub. So we'll watch for that.
2: <laughs> yeah. And uh, there used to be, uh, uh, you know, years back, there used to be on uh, when they had the Nashville Network, you would see these television shows on there that had another person named Sue Bub that worked on the on the TV shows. I don't, I'm, you know, some kind of production. Yeah. Job of some kind, but I don't know that that, that those are only the the few people that I know had the same
0: name. Yeah, that Um, that's interesting, and I and I appreciate you telling me about the German connection because I always wondered where it came from. Of course, I got a lot of Scotch Irish English, you know, heritage, but a lot of German. Where do you
2: live? Where do you live?
0: I live in Sumter County, Georgia, which is America's Georgia. The easiest way to tell people about it is all you have to do is say. Do you remember President Jimmy Carter? Well, he's from the <laughs> right. same county. Uh, it's If I went southwest from here nine miles from where I'm sitting right now, you'd be where he lives in Plains, Georgia. Okay. Same county. Okay. I love this county. We do not even have an interstate highway through this county. So. It, well... We, we do get Keep the marine. Can. <laughs> go, go ahead. We do get the Marine One her, helicopters going overhead whenever I guess he flies out of Macon or something. They pass right yeah. over the house. Usually two of them.
2: You know, boom, 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 but boom, how boom, far are you boom. from Warner Robins? That's uh, South of Georgia, of Atlanta. Yeah, that's right?
0: that's a little closer to Atlanta. That's probably I don't know forty-five miles to Warner Robins. Oh, okay, and a tad north of me. I
2: know, I know that town because. Uh, my son's played little league baseball since he was five years old, and that's a ah, that's right. a big that's a big hub for little league activity down there. You're right, you are.
0: Yeah, you know, if you were heading out of Atlanta, south to Florida, and coming down seventy five, you're kind of going away from us. We're actually down on, on nineteen US nineteen, okay. which you know will take you down to Tallahassee, in the Panhandle. Okay, but yeah, hey, let me let me begin with um, asking you. Well, first of all, where did you grow up?
2: Uh, I was born in Los Angeles uh, proper, Los Angeles, California. Really? And uh, both of my parents were born there as well. And um, so I'm a native Californian. Uh, my father had a really interesting life and career as a, uh, uh, he started out uh, in the Navy. He was a, uh, a, uh, officer in the Navy in the fifties, but, uh, both my parents both graduated high school in 1948 and they, my mom went to UCLA, my father went to USC and, uh, my dad got a degree in radio and broadcasting, which, uh, nowadays has a new title, which is, uh, media, mass media, or I don't know what they call it now, but it's, well,
0: was he, back under, then it was, was he a radio guy in the, in the service?
2: Like a radio uh, no, operator? He officer. Oh. No, he was an officer. Oh yeah. You already uh, said that. Sorry. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, uh, he, uh, he was a, uh, for lack of another modern term is, uh, he was an intern at NBC and, uh, all through college. And he worked at NBC and he parlayed that into a job there and he worked at NBC for nearly 20 years. And, uh, so, you know, and then from there, at that time, this was—I was born in '64, so you're just a little bit older than me. But uh, uh,
0: did he sneak you into the Tonight Show and stuff? Get you free tickets and stuff?
2: No, all this happened kind of before I was around. Now, oh, okay. My, my older brother and sister—they probably got to go see a few things here and there. I do remember going to see The Price Is Right one time, or no, uh, Hollywood <laughs> Squares. Uh, years later, my dad still had connections there, and we got some tickets to go see a show. But, yeah. But uh, anyway, my dad. Uh, uh, he was uh, in a licensing department. He, he did all kinds of stuff like uh, licensing NBC products and television uh, rights and all that kind of stuff. And he also worked with actors doing um, uh, residual contracts where they would get paid for, for uh, you know, reuse of television shows and series and that sort of thing. And uh, he went to Lake Tahoe, Nevada. A guy had built a theme park based on the uh, Bonanza television series called Fond Ranch. And uh, my dad was dispatched to go and negotiate with this guy, all the various licensing things and stuff like that. And the guy ended up hiring my dad away from NBC. So we left California and we moved to Lake Tahoe, Nevada, where my dad became general manager of this theme park uh, called Ponderosa Ranch. It was based on the Bonanza television series. And
0: how old were you roughly at that time?
2: Uh, When we moved up there, I was probably about three
0: so do you have exactly. lots of little cowboy suits and guns and holsters and stuff?
2: We went full on cowboy from there on, uh, and it was you know at that age it's just a great it was great you know it was just uh, you know there were horses and and uh, you know there was I mean I grew up cowboys and Indians we 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 loved cap guns and all that kind of right thing as a little kid and uh, my, later from there my dad moved on to another theme park. Uh, in Tucson, Arizona, which was called Old Tucson. And it's really a very famous uh, soundstage and movie location uh, where they filmed a lot of John Wayne movies and stuff. And my dad also became the general manager of that property down there. And both my oldest brother and sister worked there as teenagers. And uh, <laughs> my next older brother and I, we just had free reign. We just ran around the place. And we knew all the little cubby holes. And and um, so... From an early age, I was uh, around various parts of show business, whether it was the amusement or it was, uh, uh, you know, television and, and acting and all that kind of stuff. This is kind of around all that kind of stuff. And yeah. at, at a certain point, my dad just kind of got fed up with the corporate world. Um, he was a retired captain in the Navy. So he was a very studious guy and uh, uh, very talented in a lot of different things things, and he decided that he was the only way to really uh, satisfy what he wanted in life was to become his own boss, and so uh, he did a full study on small business, and he ended up buying a dry cleaning business in Mm -hmm. in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, this was about the time I was in the sixth grade, so we moved to uh, Scottsdale, where I kind of grew up, went to high school there in Scottsdale, Arizona. And, uh, and that's where I started playing music. But, uh, my dad, I worked for my dad. We all worked for my dad in this business. They eventually, my mom and dad got two dry cleaning operations. My mom ran one, my dad ran the other. And, uh, we all worked there growing up and uh, we're part of the family business. And so I get a little bit of that influence in my music career, which is how I tell people, I said, believe it or not, we're all in business for ourselves and we're entrepreneurs. And you need to think about it in those terms, you know?
1: Yeah, I
0: think that's really interesting. You know, what you're talking about is almost the exact same timeline. I think my parents graduated from high school, 47, 48, 49, somewhere in there. And at about the same time you're talking about, he did the same thing, opened his own business. He was a printer, and all the Uh kids worked at mom and pop's print shop, you know. It was very similar sounding.
2: Yeah, you start with the basics. Sweeping and cleaning and all that kind of stuff yeah. to, you know, burning your way up to a little more responsibility, which is managing and, you know, looking after the maintenance of the machines and the money and, the, you know, you just build responsibility that way. So my, my parents, you know, and this is how it happened when I was, you know, just in high school, when I began to drive, I was able to, you know, just freed me up to do a lot of things. Right. but. Um, but one of the most important things, you know, was that I I started getting around and seeing people play music, and my dad was a big music fan, and uh, he wasn't really a great musician. Matter of fact, he was a terrible musician. But my mother had all the musical talent, and uh, from a young age she played piano. And until her she died at the age of eighty two, she she could uh, you could put a piece of sheet music in front of her, she could read it like she was reading the newspaper yeah. and just play it perfectly. Although she didn't play for years and years other than for pleasure once in a while. Uh, But in the 50s, my mom and dad, you know, they kind of followed the trends. And that was when the Kingston Trio was really big. They kind of grew up in the big band era in the 40s Mm -hmm. uh, during the war years. And then, uh, you know, in the 50s, uh, when the Kingston Trio and the kind of big folk boom came around, that caught their ear. and They had a lot of those records in their collection. And then, uh, you know, along came the 60s. And my dad is a corporate guy and he's, you know, we had all the lounge music and all of that kind of stuff yeah. in my house, and then I, my older brothers, and my sister, everybody in our family played music or was attached to some some kind of music or an instrument at some point. You know,
0: were you in the uh, in the school band program? Did you play anything in band? Uh,
2: when I was in uh, fourth grade, third or fourth grade, I, I started on the clarinet. I, I was fascinated with Benny Goodman. I thought he was just the greatest thing ever. And I wanted to play the clarinet, so I started there. But I was quick to realize that um, it, it, even at that level, that you don't you don't just play the clarinet on your own. It, it's part of a bigger sound and a bigger piece of the you know for you know an orchestra or whatever you want to call it. Right. It, it. It takes other people. You play in parts and you play sections, and and so at some point it just kind of it 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 didn't. It, it wasn't as attractive
0: to me. That's exactly like me. I when I was in, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, I was playing the French horn in the high school band, and I began to like become real concerned. Like, what will I do when I don't have a band? Because you can't just, you know, like take your French horn over to somebody's house and do a little jamming or something. <laughs> yeah, hey, uh, and it's like, Brad,
2: get out your French horn and play us a couple songs,
0: and maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, we would do little things, like you might get a little thing at, at church or something where somebody wanted you to play a little thing at a wedding. You know, we're going to have a French horn part with the wedding march or something. But
2: Christmas program.
0: I wanted to, get, you know, my brother was into bands and he, you know, he was into earth, wind and fire in Chicago and all this kind of stuff. And he was mapping out his future, you know, jamming and playing music. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And then I found the banjo yeah. and at some point you found bluegrass and you're a banjo player. How did you get into the bluegrass thing?
2: Well, um, again, it was just that, you know, that exposure to it. Uh, when I was, you know, I guess maybe 10 or maybe not quite 10 was when, uh, uh, dueling banjos was on all the airwaves. I mean, it was the rage, you know, and, uh, I didn't see the movie deliverance until I was much older. Um, it was not really a kids-oriented movie. Uh, yeah. And, no uh, <laughs> but uh, the the and banjos, you know, banjo in general played in the in the shrug style has an effect on people. And uh, I was just mesmerized by it. And <clears throat> I've seen a few people play the banjo. And uh, my mom and dad actually, I think uh, maybe right before they had kids, During the folk era, folk boom, um, they took an interest in uh, learning the banjo for some reason. I don't know why, but my dad bought a banjo and they had some kind of a community uh, outreach lessons at a park somewhere where they would go and they took lessons from a guy. And that didn't last very long because life got in the way, but um, those instruments uh, were in our house forever. And uh, so... I was always plinking around on, you know, my brother played trumpet. And uh, so a lot of his friends, he played in the school band. And so he had a lot of friends that were into jazz and and we we, we knew some real virtuosos growing up. Great musicians that were just so talented um, that are now, you know, nationally known uh, horn players and, you know, that type of thing. So I was always around this uh, music, and uh, for some reason, I just, you know, the stroke style banjo just, just, it just knocked me over, you know, knocked me out, and uh, I made a deal with my mom. I wanted to take some lessons, and so uh, it was one of those things when you well, maybe if you clean your room this week, we'll see about it, you know, yeah. kind of things. And, yeah. And that's how I got started. I just took some lessons from a guy named Steve Kelsey, who was, uh, he had a little guitar studio uh, in Scottsdale. And uh, he was primarily a folk musician. He uh, he played a little bit of scruggs style banjo, you know, enough to teach somebody to get started. And he also taught guitar and uh, acoustic guitar. Real nice guy. And uh, he kind of guided me along. When we kind of had hit the wall with the strug style, he started teaching me the frailing stuff. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't really interested in that. So um, I set out to find another teacher. And my sister uh, was at a corporate party at one of the resort hotels there one time and they had a band playing it was a bluegrass group and so she asked the banjo player if he gave lessons and he goes well i don't really give lessons he said but i uh, haven't give me a call and uh he she said well he's really into it and uh you know and so i called this guy his name is chris buchler and uh he began take, teaching me lessons and my dad would drive me over to his house he, he'd mix it after work he'd mix a big martini <laughs> and uh and uh, he would take his uh, you know the time magazine would come once a week so he'd take that and he would sit outside this guy's house while i took my lesson and have his cocktail <laughs> and then drive me home well these lessons got longer and longer you know they went from you know half hour to an hour to hour and a half the next thing you know I'm, my dad would just drop me off over there and i would just spend a couple hours and we would do everything from play music to listen to records and, and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and it just, uh, it gets kind of built from there. And that's how I got started playing uh, banjo. And I just became obsessed with it right about that time. I was in high school, starting high school. I was 13 years old, I guess when I started 14 and, um, and it was just my whole, uh, you know, I had a whole other life outside of high school because of music. There's nobody I knew in high school played this stuff. Um, and then later on, I got to know my, my guidance counselor actually played in a band, a bluegrass band. And uh, I got to work with him later when I was, you know, when I had to drive when I was 16. And yeah. stuff, so
0: That was a lucky break. I mean, my guidance counselor, he didn't know anything about music. And I, I went in you, there. It was required in high school. You had to at least once go sit and talk to the guidance counselor. And he said, so what do you want to do? And I said, <laughs> I, I want to be a farmer. And he said, well, you know, a farmer, you're going to require the land. Where are you going to get the land? And I said, I don't know. And he just said, well, okay, you can go back to class. That, that was my guidance.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, music is a funny thing. You, know, you, you spend the rest of your life explaining it to people uh, because it's a its a way of life and it's a, it's a chosen profession that uh, is not, it's just unique to uh, to a standard way of life. You know, most people... Uh, I find uh, live in a structured way. They, they know exactly what they're doing day after day, every week, what their hours are, how much they're getting paid. And they plan everything around this sort of static um, calendar that they maintain. And uh, you try to explain <laughs> the music business to people. They was like, how how do you live like that? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, I know I have a lot of days off. I don't, you know, my work makes up for the days off, kind of thing. You know, it's just a, it's just a unique way of life, and I was very attracted to it. You know, from the, for, from early on. When I went to my first bluegrass festival, a friend of mine that I had also met, another banjo guy, when I was about fifteen, me and him, he drove me up to a bluegrass festival in Arizona, and that was and you know, when we camped out. I mean, we didn't even have a tent or anything. And I just, we just landed with these guys that had a band and they jammed the whole time, you know. And I was just fascinated by it. I just thought it was the greatest experience, you know, the fellowship and the music and the, the outdoor part of it and uh, the all of that. Just, it just all was attractive to me, you know. And uh, it became an obsession, basically.
0: Well, you know, um, the, the, you were talking about that lifestyle of a musician versus the punch in the clock and everything is organized and planned. and you know you, you work for the gold watch and stuff like that. One of the big, I think the make or break um, decisions people often make as in their youth is a wife and kids. Because as soon as you got the wife and kids, your your choices are considerably limited you know now you're kind yeah. of like forced into getting into the the harness so to speak um yeah and, and if you can avoid that for a little while you're a little freer to ramble around and try things and you know see how it goes you know
2: yeah i was kind of a late bloomer there you know i didn't get married until i was uh, 38 years old and uh became a father at 40 and uh no regrets whatsoever there. But um, yeah. uh, I moved to Nashville when I was in my early 20s. I was about 24 when I moved here. So well, but
0: Before you go to Nashville, look, were you playing regularly with a band, Arizona? I, I don't know why in my mind I'm thinking somehow you were hooked up with Butch Baldessari. Is that correct?
2: Well, uh, in my travels, you know, uh, once I graduated high school, I graduated high school in 1982, I really wanted to pursue music. And I had been playing with some local bands in, in the, in the, in Arizona, in the Phoenix area. And, uh, you know, Phoenix is basically made up of a lot of people that, especially back then had moved from other parts of the country, Yeah. whether it was for their asthma or retirement, or they came for work. You know, the guy that I worked for was a, he was kind of a legendary old time fiddle player entertainer named Lyman Keeling. <laughs> and, uh, he did all the park concerts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, he was from the state of Tennessee. Now, he moved to Arizona to work on the Salt River Project, which was a, uh, a uh, big um, um, canal project to bring water to all of the fields and the farming, you know, support the farmers in the valley uh, in Arizona. You know, they grow all kinds of stuff there, oranges, all, all kinds of stuff. So that's why he was there in the 50s. A lot of people kind of migrated there in the 50s. So I say all that to say that there's a lot of bluegrass roots there, people that came from that, you know, brought that music with them, much like the Okies did when they went to California, same thing, in the Dust Bowl, you know. So there's a lot of people from a lot of different places there in Phoenix. So I was around a bunch of people that played music, and it was actually a pretty good little scene man. They had a a, uh, uh, bluegrass association, they put on some concerts, and, most of the festivals out there were more contest oriented. They were uh, instrument contests and such. And uh, and then uh, that's how I met Butch Baldessari. Was yeah. He was uh, he would go to these contests. No,
0: was he from out there? Was he from Arizona?
2: Uh, actually, uh, Butch was from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Really? And uh, he had moved to Las Vegas. His family had a he had a family business as well. His dad was in the vending machine business. They huh. had vending machines all through the Pocono Mountains. Every, every hotel and, and game room was Baldessari vending in, in the Poconos. <laughs> but he, you know, he wanted to leave. He was just like me. He was very interested in music. He came to Nashville for a minute and worked at Randy Wood's old-time picket parlor in the mid-'70s and um, worked as a luthier and was down here not for very long. Eventually, he wound up in Vegas and became a crafts dealer out there. And uh, he this worked for 10 years, 10 years as a crap stealer all on the, while on the side, he was playing music and playing bluegrass. He was played in uh, all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of entertainment uh, needed for banquets and parties and all kinds of stuff that, you know, you don't, the kind of music you play when you're not on stage, you right. know, for other events that kind of thing. So he did a lot of that kind of stuff too. And uh, so that's how I met him. And uh, eventually I graduated high school. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where to go. And we had seen on TV that there was a college program for country and bluegrass music. And uh, before the internet, you had to go to the library You pull out these big books that had uh, uh, all the colleges listed in the United States with all their curriculums and they were all cross-referenced stuff. So you could, so we went and looked up this little college called South Plains college in West Texas. It's in a desolate little town called Level Land, 30 miles west of Lubbock, Texas, out on the Texas, uh, what they call the Cap Rock. It's a, it's a large expanse of this flat land mass. It just goes for miles and miles. And, um, anyway, we thought, well, what to do next? Well, let's go to Banjo U. You know? So I ended up going to <laughs> South Plains College out of high school for lack of knowing where else to go. And when I got there, I realized I could have gone anywhere but here. <laughs> I mean, it's literally in the middle of nowhere and it's just, uh,
0: Now wasn't Al, am I correct? Was Alan Mundy part of that?
2: Yes. Yeah. The first year that I was there, uh, he was not there. Um, and what, what I did was I went for a year and then I left for a year and a half and I went and roamed around the country and I played some, I tried to start a band with Butch and then I, um, I went west or east and I, I joined a band from Milwaukee called the brew county rounders they had an ad in bluegrass unlimited and i answered the ad and uh, i moved to milwaukee while i was in milwaukee and they were just uh like a regional band you know
0: you still playing banjo Uh, at that point
2: playing banjo yeah yeah uh, a buddy of mine named ward stout who butch had found and brought out west for a little while to try to start this band that didn't get off the ground he was working with bob paisley and uh, he tracked me down he called me up and he said hey you should come out here and audition because uh, I don't think the banjo players will stay with us and we're going to need somebody. Well, that sounded like, uh, you know, like the biggest bluegrass gig I could possibly get. So I drove all the way from Milwaukee to uh, he lived in Wilmington or not Wilmington, Newark, Delaware, which is really just where uh, Delaware Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania kind of come together there yeah. in, in New Jersey. And uh, I went and auditioned with Bob Paisley. And as I'm walking out the door, that's a thousand mile drive, at least from Milwaukee to there. It's, it's a long way. And uh, I got there and I auditioned with him. As I'm walking out the door, the phone rang this the banjo player's wife saying that he wasn't going to go on the trip that weekend, that they needed to get somebody to fill in. They hang up the phone. He says, I guess you're going to Canada with us this weekend. <laughs> and so like two days later, I got in the van and I don't know, God knows where we went up in the... Ontario or some, I don't know where we went, you know, another <laughs> thousand mile trip. And then I came back and I decided I was going to take this job because the big carrot at the end of the summer was we were going to do a tour to Japan. Now, I'm 19 years old this time. yeah. And, uh, so I moved down there, rented a room in a guy's house down there in Newark, Delaware. And I uh, played with Bob Paisley for summer and we went to Japan. And then when I came back, it was like no work. I didn't really know what to do. And I just, uh, you know, that's the part of bluegrass uh, when you're when you're really young and you realize that, uh, you know, and, and nobody's going to be really looking out for you. You know, there's no loyalties to any super young guys that are wanting to really play this music. And I realized there was nothing before me. I was going to have to get a job. I like to get a job anywhere. So I decided to move back home and I quit. And again, I didn't know what to do. So I went back to South Plains College for a year and a half. And, uh, that is when I kind of hooked up with Ron Block and, uh, he went out there and we would travel around with another guy named Eric Uglum and we would enter these picking contests we would go, we went to festivals all over the country. I did an contests contest practically for a living for a while and, um, and, I had a pretty good track record. You know, you didn't ever really want to win. So you could come back and do it again the next year, you know, all right. All right. uh, but anyway, that's how I got started. And eventually, we, we played in a band contest in Arizona, in Wickenburg, Arizona, the three of us. And we added Butch on mandolin. And we won the band contest. And all of a sudden, we had this epiphany. And we thought, wow, we can really kind of do this now, you know? Now we had a band. And uh, so we started booking gigs. And that's how, that's how our, my first band got started, you know?
0: Yeah, what was that band it was,
2: called? It was called Weary Hearts. Right, okay. And uh, we started out, uh, I lived in Arizona and then butch was in las vegas and eric and ron lived over in southern california and so we were kind of in a six-hour triangle from each other and um uh, but we would uh you know travel around and i gotta say my dad my dad was a such a my, both my mom and my dad were just great supporters of me wanting to do this you know they my dad always said you gotta find your groove and get in it you know whatever it is and uh whatever interests you, you've got to find your place there and see what see what you can do for it and what it can do for you, you know? And so when he saw that I had this, you know, voracious appetite for the banjo, bluegrass music and all this kind of stuff, he really helped feed my ability to go out and do it. You know, he bought a lot of gasoline for me and, and uh, allowed me to go and make these trips. I mean, I traveled all over the place by myself when I was 18, 19 years old. I drove all over the country. I was, pretty foot loose And, and my dad, you know, felt I was responsible enough to, to handle it and be able to do that. You know, this day and age, I don't know that parents would be so, uh, you know, open about their kids traveling on their own like that, but, yeah, um, they're, not. but from young, they're not, i a young, I traveled a lot from a young age and I was very shabby. I could take care of myself, you know? So, so I was very fortunate in that my parents, you know, they saw it as an opportunity. They didn't see it as some wacky, crazy idea, you know. Because my dad worked in the entertainment business his whole life, you know. And uh, he always said, you know, my advice to my kids is stay out of the entertainment business. Hmm. And uh, we've, we've all dabbled in it a little bit here and there in different different facets, you know.
0: Well, how did you, um, what what then led you ultimately to Nashville?
2: Well, you uh, know when I started that band Weary Hearts, I was, I was playing the bass, uh, cause Ron was such a, you know, a great, uh, instrumentalist banjo player. He had a work ethic like nobody else I ever met as far as practicing goes. And, uh, so I just kind of deferred all that to him. I played the bass. And, um, eventually, you know, as all bands do, uh, you, you, you start out being very, uh, sort of ideological in your pursuit and your music and what you want to do with it and, what you want it to be. And then, uh, you know, people's lives change inside and outside of the band as you grow and get a little older and spend more time together. And, and then, uh, you eventually, there's, uh, dramas that happen and things that happen. And so we had, a, we had a band change and we ended up, um, hiring this guy, Chris Jones, who's a DJ on Sirius Satellite Radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had seen him at a festival and we tracked him down in Boston and, uh, he said, "I will. I will come join your band." He said, "If you guys will think about moving to Nashville, because that's what, kind of where I want to end up at." And we said, "Yeah, we'll consider that." You know, and that, he was the first one to kind of put the thought into our heads to move to Nashville. Yeah, and uh, we we had been here a couple times to compete in this uh, big band contest that they have here uh, at the uh, Spigma uh, Bluegrass Festival and Awards and and International Bluegrass Band Contest that they have here. And back then, it was really big. They would get 60 and 70 bands for that thing. And um, we had seen a video. Uh, they had sold a videotape of uh, like top five bands from the year before or whatever. And we thought, oh, God, we could compete with these guys. And so we started coming out to it. We competed three times. But we didn't win it until we had uh, Chris in our band. And uh, it was kind of a, you know, when we got Chris Jones in the band, all of a sudden we had a, we had a uh, guy who was a songwriter, a real sort of singing stylist and front man. And, uh, and a guy who had, uh, you know, a lot of his own sort of takes on material. We weren't just playing Stanley brothers music and, um, you know, repeating bluegrass one more time. uh, As as, is, happens a lot in the, in the music. I mean, it's just part of what we do is, you know, we always rehash the past musically, but we had a guy who kind of brought us kind of our own sound. And uh, so, Uh, in 1988, we went to, uh, IBMA and we got a record deal. We, we, we did a showcase at IBMA in Owensboro and we got a record deal with flying fish records. And so from there, uh, we went to the Spigma contest in February. This would have been, you know, September of 88. And then we went to the Spigma contest in February of 89 and we won. Uh, we won first place, $5,000. And uh, we had him cash the checkbook because we didn't have two nickels to rub together. <laughs> and uh, so Chuck Stearman cashed our check and he gave us $5,000 in small bills. <laughs> we carried around in a big garbage bag uh, <laughs> that we put in a duffel bag. <laughs> oh, and uh, and after the festival on Monday, we worked, we started our record and we made a record for Flying Fish. And, um, and then the following summer um, Ron dropped out of the band. Uh, he had gotten married and, and, uh, so he decided that he was going to stay out West and, and, um, and we continued on. I went back to playing banjo. We were getting different guys to fill in for us and just sort of scotch tape the thing together. And then, uh, uh, in September that following year, eighty nine, we moved to Nashville. We made the big commitment and we went to IBMA, and then Butch and I flew back out west, and we loaded up a big moving van and we moved here. And uh, so I've been here since nineteen eighty nine, or twenty thirty one years now.
0: Yeah, that's a well. Now since since eighty nine, you're still around Nashville now, correct?
2: Yeah, I live in Hendersonville now. Uh, I live up north end of town.
0: How long from the time you got there and you you got your feet on the ground around there? I mean you know where we're going to Dell. How how did that happen? I mean that is like a dream come true for any player. Maybe it wasn't at the time you joined the band, but certainly by the time you left, I mean you rode
2: that rocket, you know. Yeah, well when we got here we were, you know, we had lost Ron who was such a major part of our band. He was our tenor singer, songwriter tremendous instrumentalist on guitar and banjo, you know, and it just was such a big part of our sound that we just had to keep Scott the band together, you know, and try to make it work. And at some point we kind of realized, you know, now we've gotten, and then, you know, Chris eventually decided that he wanted to leave. And so, you know, now we're like, well, we're not, how can we call it the same thing? We're not really where we started anymore. Yeah, We're better off just calling it something new than calling it the same thing. And also what happens when you come to Nashville is all of a sudden there's all these opportunities that are cropping up uh, in front of you all the time, you know. But I can't really do that because I'm at this other commitment, you know, I'm attached to this other thing. So eventually, you know, our band just sort of splintered apart. And because of these other opportunities that were around us to do other things. And the struggle to kind of keep our band together and do that. We were doing it all the bookings and the everything, you know,
0: the guys you've mentioned, they may have splintered apart, but they certainly continued on with some pretty yeah. memorable things. I
2: mean, yeah, as I often say, we're all still playing. We're just not playing together.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All, I mean, everybody you mentioned, uh, that, and I, I don't know how many CDs and records I have with, you know, you know, yeah. well, each one a of
2: them. Time, you know, at that time, at that time, our band and Allison Krause's band and uh, the band that became Allison's band—they uh, were called Dusty Miller. Uh, we we were all the same, sort of in the same place coming up. We all came up together. We we were all friends. We 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 played a lot of festivals together and and hung out together and that kind of thing. And uh, so we you know uh, we sort of had a it was kind of a fruitful time for all of us. And most of us are all still. In some form or fashion, you know, playing music and still doing it um, as things evolve through the years and people, you know, move on to other things and change and this and that, you know, the scene changes. But uh, we had worked several times with Del McCurry. We'd opened for him at the, at the Birch Mirror once uh, with Weary Hearts, And um, I had this kind of strange relationship with Del McCurry from early on, the very first time I was ever at a jam session, first time I ever played music with other people uh i caught a ride home with a guitar player and i got in his, in his truck and he's playing a statement i said who, who are you listening to who is this and he goes that's bill mccurry and it was the high on the mountain album
1: yeah
2: and uh so that was almost like a it was like a, you know that was the first time i'd heard him uh, we went to McAllister, oklahoma ron and eric and i went to McAllister, Oklahoma. Uh, to the Bluegrass Festival, specifically to see an, uh, a, a guy who was an Indian guy that had a family Bluegrass band named Buck Tanner. And uh, he was just hilarious. He was They put him on last on the show because he was just, I don't want to say they were terrible, but they were just, it was just such an entertaining <laughs> thing to see. And we had all these bootleg tapes of this guy that we loved to listen to and laugh at. And uh, so we went there to see him. And also on that bill was Del McCurry. It's the first time I ever saw Del McCurry in person. And I sat right down in front of the stage and watched him and Jerry McCurry was playing bass and, and, uh, Ronnie was on mandolin and, um, I to think, uh, a banjo player, um, was with him a number of years ago. I played with Joe Val, uh, uh, great banjo player. Anyway, that was my first experience with seeing him. So flash forward now another five or six years kind of crossed paths. So I moved to Nashville and, um, the the McCurry's would come around every once in a while, you know, they would pass through town or whatever. So I kind of got to know Ronnie a little bit, and uh, they used to have a bluegrass festival at the um, Opryland amusement park. And so I was out there once, I guess around 1991, I guess, and I was out there talking to Ronnie. And uh, he said, Hey, he said, my parents are looking at property down here, they're thinking about moving down here from Pennsylvania, and uh, he says, We're probably not gonna we're probably going to need a bass player and a fiddle player, you know? And I said, man, I said, I would love to do that. I said, I already know all the songs. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and at the time I did, I mean, I just, I knew all Bill's stuff and I was a big fan of his and, and, uh, and especially, uh, I was a big fan of Ronnie and Rob, cause they're kind of my age, you know? And, uh, I love their playing. And, uh, so he said, well, I'll, I'll stay in touch with you on it. You know, well, it took, months and months went by and I even went to Japan for three months and worked over there with a band, uh, and, and another amusement place there for three months. I came back, I kept in touch with Ronnie. And then he was actually the first one to move down here. He moved here in February of 92. And we had a weekly band called the Sidemen played every Tuesday. at Station Inn. Yep. And, uh, it, it became, it became a real thing down here because it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, we did it every week, and it was all guys that played in the Opry Blue Dress bands. Jimmy Campbell, Billy Rose with Bill Monroe. Jimmy Campbell was with Jim and Jesse. Steve Thomas and Terry Eldridge with the Osborne Brothers. And Mike Compton had been playing with us, but he actually moved uh, to New York for a, uh, a little bit and left town. And that was right when Ronnie moved to town. So that's when Ronnie got here. We said, hey, why don't you start playing with us, and we'll play every we'll just play every Tuesday. So that's what we started doing. That and that got me in there. And so me and Ronnie were, you know, really tight. And uh, and then eventually, uh, Dell did move down here, like in June of '92. But uh, I started with him in May of '92. And I went to Beaver, Pennsylvania. I played a show with him up there. And uh, he said, uh, he said, "Well, I guess we'll use you next week if you want to." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that was that was where I started. Uh, May yeah. of nineteen ninety two. It was a great time to get with Dell because you know a lot of things were really happening for him. He he was one of the first male vocalists of of the IBMA awards, and uh, his album "Don't Stop the Music" was just uh, it was a uh, it was huge in bluegrass. I mean that was just a great collection of songs and really, you know, made Dell, I mean Dell was always uh, you know treated like a regional act, although he, people loved him around the world. He'd already been to Japan and he'd. Uh, you know, he'd been out west and played the big festivals out there. and uh But he was a guy that, you know, he was kind of a part-timer, I would say. Uh As full part-time as you could be, you know, having to work a job and play music. I mean, sometimes he would just drop Ronnie and Rob off here in town and come back and get them the next week and go back home, you know. Yeah. So Anyway, that's where I started with him. And it was a great time to be with him because, of course, he moved to Nashville, made a big splash, came down here and he got you know, a good booking agent. And then he just started building his brand down here. And after about six or seven years, I guess, uh, eight years, really, he got a manager and uh, and things really blew up from there, you know. So uh, it, was a, it was a terrific ride. I mean, it was just, uh, we worked a lot and, and we did a lot of things that other bands, um, you know, kind of never had the opportunity to do. And, uh, and that was and mainly it was just work a lot. We, we played all the time and we were just so interconnected socially, musically, professionally, you know? And, uh, so it was, it was, you know, it was phenomenal and it was always the next year or the next month or the next week, something, something was going to happen, you know, it kept us, kept us going at all times.
0: Yeah. I, I always tell people that you're not really in a band unless you have something on the calendar in the future. And you guys, i right. sure, had it lined way out in advance.
2: Yeah, we constantly were, were having to, you know, I look back on it now, and, you know, there was times that were not so enjoyable as far as the travel or what the travel was like. But those are all things you learn from. And you, when, you, when you get to learn from somebody like Del McCurry, who is just, uh, you know, you don't, you'll you never hear Del McCurry complain about nothing, hardly at all, ever, you know.
0: Yeah, I saw him on stage. Uh, just I guess about two years ago, he was down playing in Athens, and me and a buddy rode up there to see him. And he it was it was funny because he he completely forgot the words to Vincent Black Lightning. Like halfway in the middle of the song, he just got all messed up, and the crowd loved it. That they didn't care. They absolutely didn't care, yeah. and he laughed it off. I mean, everybody came away from there thinking man, what a dude. This guy is just, you know, that is just too cool, you know. And he he is. He yeah. just rolls with a flow.
2: Well, that's the thing, you know, uh, the most bands are very organized and they're set list and all that kind of stuff. You know, they they have almost a scientific look at how they're going to play their show to the people. And there's some merit to that. But the fact that somebody like Del McCurry, who's recorded, you know, who knows, 30 albums, and uh, in, in that he's got over, Four hundred songs to draw off of, you know, he's going to have a, a brain freeze every once in a right, while,
1: right? Understandably, and, uh, you know,
2: and, and and he parlays that into um, some entertainment value. Maybe not even on purpose, but it's just something that endears him to people. You know, it's like, uh, you know, no, not all bluegrass is absolutely perfect, and I just can't remember everything every day. You know, I got I got a lot going on up here, and that's why he's got a band around him. But, you know, to help him with the words, feed him the words. We knew the words to everything. Right. Even though right. I, I couldn't sing any of his songs. I could tell him what the next line right, was. Right, you know. Right. Uh, just because you know, on a moment's notice, you you just you know you know what's missing, and you just tell him from behind, and he would he would uh, continue on. But th- th- those are those endearing things when a crowd sees it. Uh, that um, it just it just it brings people to you. You know. Cause it's real. It's, it's, it's so real.
0: Well, I'll tell you something else that I think about him and I again, sorry, I keep interrupting you, but at that show, it was so obvious that this is a family organization, you know, during the break, my buddy, John and I walked back to the record table. It's Dell's wife sitting in the chair, yep. peddling the shirts and hats and stickers and CDs and stuff. And, I mean, this is truly a fam- family. I mean, and, as the level he had achieved at that point it was only two years ago, that's yeah. unreal, but that's super bluegrassy.
2: Well, you know, that's the thing. That's one of the reasons why he moved here to Nashville, I think was to really establish his boys in the music business, because obviously that was the route they were going to go, you know? And, uh, so this seemed like a good thing to do for the family, you know, for the family brand and so forth. Um, now, Jean, she she retired early from her. She worked in a, you uh, know, a, a factory of some sort that that um, made wiring harnesses and stuff. And uh, she left that job early to move to Nashville. And then she started playing. She started traveling full time with Dell at that time. But before that, she probably didn't travel that much with him. Uh, but not until she came to Nashville and. It really helped, though, because all of a sudden, you know, the re- the record table is a, it's a very valuable component to uh, your business as far as uh, being an entertainer and touring and that sort of thing. And if uh, if the star of the show doesn't have to sit there and make change for people, yeah. it allows you to interact with people. And it's a, it's a really a great thing if you got somebody to just take care of that stuff for you and handle all that, you know. He doesn't want to worry about their inventory and how many CDs he took in and blah 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 blah. Make sure I've got enough fives to make change and all this stuff. Yeah, it's you know he's got other things to worry about. Like, let me check the oil on the on the bus. And, you know, make sure this thing <laughs> yeah. is working. You know, he's just got a lot on his on his hands. And so that was just a great, it was a great help to him to have that. And it also helped us because we we made it a point that we would come to the record table after every show and we would meet people and talk to them and sign autographs and, uh, and, and we didn't have to sell anything. You know, we didn't have to make change. People would just come to us with a CD and we'd autograph it and you could have an an exchange with them. And it became very personable to the people. And I think that's just a, it's a very important thing. You know, uh, when you, when you're freed up, when you're freed up to be able to do that, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that is so, emblematic of the bluegrass business is that's what you see at every festival, you know,
2: it's old school in a way, but it's also, it's a way for the people to really, you know, connect in an extra way with somebody to have a conversation with somebody and, uh, you know, uh, feel like, you know, and, and, and I made a lot of friends that way. I mean, I've got a lot of friends that I just met at the record table that I, I have to this day, you know, we've just remained friends over the years, whether they were, you know, considered super fans or whatever, you know, we, we, somehow we hit some kind of personal, uh, vibe where we were, we, we, we exchanged numbers and became friends and that kind of thing. Right. That,
0: That same kind of thing happened to me because we were playing a lot of festivals and we, you know, we'd have our table sitting next to somebody else and somebody else. And, and you got like five hours to kill. So you're hanging out and your table is next to continental divides table, or, you know, the Osborne brothers, or whoever. And yeah. you got a lot of time to just sit there, and you're swapping records and shooting the breeze and stuff. And it, yep. it really taught me how much, you know, bluegrass people are just people. They really are just people.
2: They're just well, like you know, I, everybody when else. I, when, I to, when I talk to people, you know, I, I, I've toured for about five years with a country artist named Ashley Monroe, who's just a... Fabulous singer and songwriter. She's from uh, East Tennessee, and she has a little bluegrass in her background uh, through her father. And, and um, you know, we connected musically very well. And I was the only guy basically in commercial country music playing upright bass, uh, you know, opening for bands like Rascal Flats and people like that, which is kind of a cool thing. But it's a whole other, it's a whole other, uh, it's much like bluegrass is its own little world touring in that world is a whole nother ball of wax too and it's very different and um, you know i always tell people i said well i said you can go and and you can play country i said but when they're done with you you can always fall back on bluegrass they'll always take you back <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. you know what. You can go gray, you can go overweight, whatever it is. You know, the bluegrass people, they're just glad to have you back, you know.
1: Yeah, and the uh, truth.
2: And they'll they'll always accept you, and it'll always be there. It's just something that's not going to just go away, you know.
0: Well, I want to shift gears here just a little bit. But I'll tell you what, before we kind of leave the the Dell phase, and and we kind of have already, but during that time, there had to be some real high points or A, high point and some low points i mean i can't even imagine the countless hours that you sat looking out the window of a bus you know just just from that you know all that touring and it doesn't even have to be with dell it could be any of it like just for for we the little people um if you could like just point out like something that was just like mind-blowingly good that happened and maybe on the other end like what was the worst part of all that
2: (laughs) well i tell people a lot i said you know i spent half my life looking out a window um i'm looking out a window right now
0: (laughs) (laughs) well are you uh, moving are you rolling down the road though you know no your own window your own window is different uh, you gotta watch the grass grow
2: it's time you'll never get back and that's You know, you you think about the gigs and you think about the shows and the the people that you got to meet, be around. And all that covers up those hours that you spent riding somewhere, you know, the hours in the van and the car and the plane and the bus. Um, So, you know, I look back and I think I went to all these places, but most of my time was spent getting there and getting back, you know. And uh, it's a hard thing. It's a hard commitment to make. But then I look at the guys like Mac Wiseman and Ralph Stanley and Bill Monroe. I mean, these guys. That's all they did was travel their entire lives yeah. until they couldn't do it anymore. And I kind of feel like I'm going to be the same way. You know, this is what I love to do. It's 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 it's. Uh, I want to do it until I can't do it. I tell people I'm going to die with my boots on here in Nashville, no matter what happens and all this, <laughs> you know, the maniacal times. But but I'll tell you, some some of the great things that happened was just we. You know, the chance to record and hang out with somebody like David Grisman, who is just one of the most creative guys I've ever been around um, musically. So, you know, uh, we made a record with Steve Earle, which put us in a place that um, we weren't quite, uh, I wouldn't say we weren't ready for it, but we were, it was an experience that none of us had ever had before. Yeah, yeah. You know, attaching ourselves to a guy who's, who's a, a, really an activist, not only a country singer and songwriter and a rocker uh, but he's an activist and and, and so when you, you you attach yourself to something like that um you have to be ready for the for the for the downside of it which is criticism and uh, that's a and cool that's a record
0: country. by the way I've listened to it many times Quite different though. I mean that thing punches you right in the face. You know,
2: it's just... it was a very unique experience recording wise with Steve. We made it like a rock album. There's no reverb on that record at all. Uh, everything is compressed like a rock album. So it's right in your face. It's like a I liken it to pushing a six piece band to a garden hose. <laughs> and um when it comes out the yeah. other end, it's just like, you know, it's just it's a it's a real bang type record. But that whole record was made live. I mean, we just did it. And that's the, and I uh, really learned there to appreciate the spirit of you know recording something live and not overthinking it and not trying to make something perfect. you know let the let the song and the words tell the story and do what you can best to support that. And I just love that you know that's something I learned the hard way. but I would say this about you know, as far as Dell was concerned, I think that people that were probably his lifelong fans, they only knew him one way, which was the Del McCurry band or Del McCurry and the Dixie Pals. When he associated himself with Steve Earle, I think that was, not only was it a wrist on one hand, um, it was a huge boon for him because what it did was it brought all these people together, created an event, a musical event, you know? And Steve told us right from the beginning, he said, look, there's going to be people that understand this. I mean, a lot of people don't get it. They're going to understand, they do not understand why you're doing this with me and there's going to be people cool understanding my fans going, you know, why, why, why would you make a bluegrass record? You know, he said, we can't worry about those people. We got not worry about the people who do get it. He said, and that's far more people. And, and he was really right. I mean, we were going to play in these big theaters, you know, like the Vic in Chicago, selling it out. just packed, you know, four, 5,000 people a night coming out to see the show. And it was three and a half hours long um and they and, and that show you got a little bit of everything you got us with steve Earle, you got us you got steve earl solo with a little bit of his activism mixed in and and the soapbox and then we would bring it all together at the end and pull it back together and, and uh, close it out you know and sometimes iris dement would show up and come out and sing with us and it was just a it, an amazing experience um and i don't but i don't you know I don't recommend it for everybody because it, just, <laughs> yeah. it, it it could take a toll on you because like I say, I don't think that Dell ever really had a lot of harsh criticism from any of his fans for anything that he ever did. And to get a letter from somebody who says, you know, I don't know why you're out there with a guy who uses profanity on stage and, you know, doesn't believe in the death penalty and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, But it has nothing to do with Dell, you know, it's, he's yeah. just there to make the music and, create something new and interesting. And, uh, but he took some flack for it. And I think that really, I think it was hard on him to do that, you know?
0: But I think it probably opened a lot of people's ears. Oh, there were a, well, was, zillions of people that you know, never heard of Dell McCurry until that.
2: And then well, right, you know, maybe the came thing, over to the, his side. The reward was far greater, you know, yeah. and, and you have to look at it that way and okay, you might piss a few people off. Well, that's the way it goes, you yeah, know. Yeah. Catch us on our next record, you know. We'll make it up to you, kind of thing. But uh, you know, that was just a wonderful thing. We, we got to go to play uh, Farm Aid in Chicago with Steve. It was one of the first gigs we did, nationally televised, you know. And here we are backstage. We got Neil Young, Willie Nelson, uh, the band Fish. Uh, you know, who knows who all was there. Yeah. And uh, I've told the story before where we're are we were the only acoustic band there. So uh, we're in this big hangar-like room behind the stage. It's one of these big outdoor amphitheater kind of places. And and it's like behind it is this big, you know, covered area, like, like 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 a hangar. Anyway, we get the instruments out. We start warming up. Next thing you know, this huge crowd of people comes around us. We have this whole big crowd of people crowding in watching us play because nobody else, everybody else is playing electric instruments. Right. Nobody else can get out and just start jamming like we were. And I mean, these people were just freaking out over it. They just thought it was the greatest thing. And one of the guys that was in the middle of it all was Paul Schaefer from, uh, David Letterman yeah. show, yeah. the band leader. And he's just like, wow, man, this is the greatest thing ever, you know? And, uh, and that was something that helped us get that onto the David Letterman show. We were able to do the David Letterman show because of it, you know, uh, because somebody that on that team saw us and experienced it and said, Hey, you got to get these guys, you know, and, uh, and Steve had done it before. So that helped too. And um, so we got to do all those major TV shows because of it. Uh, we did a, a show called uh, sessions on West 54th street, which is a, was a, a kind of like Austin city limits, but it was done from a Columbia studios in New York city, television show, live television. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's a great experience to do that, and that's one of the best performances that we did on TV. I think, you know, the whole show was great. And here we were, I mean, we got Steve wearing suits and we got him to play on one microphone and the whole thing, you know, so, you know, he, he sacrificed a lot for us too, you know, yeah, yeah to make it, so. to make it right. And, uh, and so, you know, some big things came out of that. And that really helped kick some doors open into this other bigger world outside uh, of Bluegrass, which, you know, you can call it Roots Music Now or Americana. Um, and even even partially into country music because we did two music videos that were on CMT. Uh, we were the first ones to ever do that, you know. And back then you had to do them on real film. You couldn't do it on video. the Video quality uh, didn't match the film quality. So Uh, These were shot on real movie cameras and edited just like a a movie was, you know. And uh, both those songs are on uh, YouTube. You can find them, uh, the music videos. They're pretty good. They're they're pretty funny.
0: Well, you know, I considered you guys at that time a a bit like maybe the word is evangelist because there were so many people here in Bluegrass, and you guys just pretty much played it just straight up. I mean— no fooling yeah. around. It's just bluegrass and we hope you like it. And people did like it. And I think certainly that broke down the doors to get in the whole jam band scene. But if I were to go see Dale McCurry at some jam band festival, I, it would be just like it always was. I mean, it's just bluegrass.
2: Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't change for the, for nothing. You know. Yeah.
0: Just, that's what's so great I remember about it.
2: One time, I remember one time we were at a college out down, down in uh, Wyoming or Montana somewhere. Uh, playing a concert, and uh, the guy says to Dale, he says, okay, go, we're going to go over and do a TV interview for our our television, our school television station. And Dale said, well, they didn't tell me about that. <laughs> he says, yeah, let's well, do something we do to promote the show. And he said, well, he goes, I don't have my stage clothes on. He goes, oh, no, it's just a casual thing. You don't need to change or anything. He goes, he goes, no, you don't understand. I don't, I, don't, I don't go on stage or in front of the camera unless I have my stage attire on, you know?
0: It wouldn't be the bluegrass way.
2: Well, this kid just couldn't grasp it, you know, and uh, right shorts, we flip at,
0: flops, t-shirt—that's cool,
2: you know. Right, and you know, years ago, a couple of years ago, I was at a festival where Dell was there, and it's a kind of in a remote place in uh, in uh, eastern Idaho. It's actually on the other side of the Tetons from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's called Grand Targhee, and it's a ski area where they have this festival. And uh, I've been going there for years. It's a great festival. And they have no dressing room. Basically, there's no there's a tent backstage with catering. Well, the boys all change. They change in the catering tent. You know, they all turn <laughs> out to get a good look, girls, and came the pants and went on with the suit. You know, and then uh, and Dell, he gets in the back of this, you know, this suburban or whatever he's driving, and he comes out of that thing dressed to the nines. I mean, from high down to his socks and shoes. I mean, he just completely changed everything. And I mean, he looked like a million dollars when he walked on that stage and that is what people come to see It is because he respects the stage and respects the audience. And he doesn't, um, you know, he's not going to just dress down for the occasion because that's not how he presents himself. You know, he won't do that. Yeah, And I just, I really love that. And, and, you know, years when I was working with Ashley Monroe, we were at some big festival up in Wisconsin, some big country who off where they had all these bro country acts, but I was really excited because Mel Tillis was going to be there. And uh, so we went out and watched Mel Tillis show. His entire band was wearing I mean, he's got like a 10 piece band back then. His entire band was wearing matching suits, yeah. Western suits. Well, no, they're just a nice Western yeah. suit, you know, yeah. Nice, nicely appointed. He came out looking like a million dollars. I mean, he had like this cream-colored ostrich boots, matching cream-colored pants and a jacket. I mean, he just was phenomenal, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember he made the comment on the stage, and he goes, and I do dress my band. <laughs> and uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of had a realization there. I was like, you know, nobody cares anymore about this kind of stuff these bands come out here, these bro country or country acts. And I said, y- you can wear a-, a jeans and a t-shirt. Nobody'd care. Yeah. But when this band comes out, it gets everybody's attention, you know?
0: Well, it's a way of respecting the audience. I think
2: it is. And it gets you something to look at. That's, you know, not so uh, common and average. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I told, actually, I said, look, so we got to start looking like a band. So we got to, we got to change the way that we present ourselves because she's very fashionable. She was always wearing, she would never wear anything twice. You know, that kind of thing. She had people giving her clothes and making her clothes and stylists and all this kind of stuff. And I said, (laughs) we need to develop, we need to create a backdrop for you. And so the simplest thing you can do was wear a a white shirt, a black tie and a black jacket, you know, blues brothers style. So that's what we did. We started wearing a black suit on stage (laughs) and, you wouldn't believe the effect it had on people. I mean, we would show up at these festivals or these gigs and we'd have the, <laughs> the, the, the ties on and this stuff. And everybody just starts to stand back and look and go, Oh, what's about to happen here? Something Something's happening here. You know, it just sort of creates an ambiance that, uh, being casual will never create. Yeah. You know? I've,
0: I've always thought people are paying the money and if they can't tell, like, let's say the band was mixing with the audience and if you can't tell who the band is, you're getting cheated. Right. You sh- they should look like the band when they come in that back door. You know, they ought to look well, like.
2: You're right. You know, give them their it's money's what sets worth. You apart. Yeah, it's something that sets you apart from every everybody else on stage and every, everything else that has to do with what you're doing there. You know, and uh, you know, I just I always appreciate people that that it, it takes effort. That's that's the biggest part of it. it, it it's an effort. It doesn't. It's, it's nothing more than that. And a lot of people just don't want to make the effort. You know, they just want to, you know, rub a little water through their hair, get on stage. They don't care. You know, well, they can't, you know, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is that, you know, people aren't going to remember you. But there's other things to make people remember you by. It. And uh, and that's and that's one of them. It's like you're just making an impression, you know, yep. visually.
0: I, I did an episode all about this, and I don't remember the number. It's probably back around 45 or... So talking about this whole subject, in fact, I talked about the Dale McCurry band in that episode. I don't even remember the title of the episode, but it was about, you know, looking the part. It's part of the deal. You know, it ain't just your sound. You got to look the part, too. You're right. Well, look, I want to shift gears. I'm going to hit the clutch and shift into neutral. I want to go to a completely different place because I know there are 10,000 stories and they're, they're, they're <laughs> fascinating. They really are. But there's got to be maybe two or three bass players listening to this right now. And I want to talk some about the bass. So to begin, just kind of quickly, you went from banjo. When you picked up the bass, and I've been around a lot of bass players, and I am a bass player, a bluegrass bass player. And there are, I think, two different schools of thought. There are the trained bass players and there are the what I call the mom bass player where here uh, put your hands here I'll put the tape on the side of the bass. How did you learn to play the bass you know physically I mean you know actually did you just pick it up and just figure it out yourself or did you have any training or well, just uh, what
2: I'm I basically self-taught I uh, I had my, my buddy that I became really good friends with as my banjo teacher my buddy Chris Buchler I mentioned earlier. Uh, he was in the band, and uh, he said, hey, uh, we got this gig in two weeks, and he goes, our bass is not going to be there. Take this bass, and here's a tape of the 10 songs. Go learn these songs, and you're going to play bass with us. I was like, really? He goes, yeah. And that's how I started. Yeah. Uh, I took the bass home, and, um, you know, if you play the banjo, uh, the, the guitar is an easy um, neighbor to learn how to play because they're basically tuned the same. And then the bass is basically the four bottom strings of the guitar. So those three instruments all relate very easily together. And so usually anybody that plays the banjo plays a little guitar or vice versa. And uh, you could pick up the bass and kind of figure out how to play it. And that's basically how I learned how to play. Um, And so I would just pick up the bass at random times later on through the years and play a little bit of bass here and there. I wasn't very good. Um, and I didn't really come into my own as a bass player until I really got to, went to work with Dell. Uh, I mean, I was in that band Weary Hearts, and I was—I I should say that—that that was a stepping stone as well because I finally bought my own bass, which I still have. Paid three hundred seventy-five dollars
0: for it. What is it? Tell me what your bass
2: is. Um, I bought out of the paper. I bought a uh, nineteen fifty-four K M one B yeah. blonde uh, K,
1: and.
2: Uh, I went over and got it from the guy. And then I had a, a bluegrass buddy who he, he was, uh, you know, he kind of did a little bit of, uh, customizing work on bases and stuff. And he's the guy that, you know, showed me how to put a, a golf ball in a drill press and put a hole in it. So you can use that for your, uh, <laughs> yeah. for your end pin, you know, yeah. and i uh, be, had to get the certain kind of golf ball that didn't fly apart when you put a drill, put it in a drill press. <laughs> and, uh, and then later on, I started getting some work done on. It. I had to get a new fingerboard put on it, and I had an ebony board put on. And I had it done in uh, Tempe, Arizona, at a violin shop. And the guy did a really nice job. And the bass changed completely. Uh, it just completely opened up, and somehow or another, became a really great sounding bass. And at the time, I didn't know much about setup and, and that kind of thing. I was started out on gut strings, eventually wound up mostly playing on comastic Spyrocore strings, but uh, that's kind of how I got my start was weary hearts. You know, I, I, I had to learn a lot of repertoire there, but um, when I went to work for Dell, you know, I just really started uh, and moved to Nashville. I really learned about the history of bass and country music and in bluegrass. And a lot of these guys were still around here. You know, I got to meet several of the, iconic bass man. you know, I got to meet uh, Joe Zinkin just, just before he passed away. Um, I got to meet uh, 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 Light and Chance, and I got to know Bob Moore a little bit. And uh, so just being around these people, you know, I just wanted to do the deeper dive. And then when you come to Nashville, you know, everybody knows about the the music, you know, and they say, hey, you know, listen to Bob Moore on this, you know, and listen to this junior husky on this now the guy that was really probably one of my probably my biggest influence of all is uh, roy husky jr just because he was here and so visible when i was coming up in the 80s you know up until the time that he died in 97 and um and so i i have to be around him a lot and i kind of emulate a lot of things he does i try to get the sound that he gets i, I could never be him or so i don't really copy his his instrument or anything that much i just try to get the sound and sort of think about the way that he played more than anything yeah he,
0: he's great
2: and of course the other would be jerry mccurry who to me the mccurry sound they all have it it's a rhythm it's a rhythmic feel and a sound uh that they have and a feel that they have when they play and so when I got to Dell, you know, again, it was not somebody that I could just – I couldn't play like Jerry. The guy is just – he's one of a kind, you know. He's just such a, um individual player, the way that he plays. He doesn't play like anybody else that I've ever heard, even to this day. And I call him the last of the great blue-collar bluegrass men, um, bluegrass, bluegrass bass men, you know. He's just uh, – uh, the way that he snaps and slaps and walks the bass and triple slaps on waltzes and does all this stuff. So I borrowed what I could from him uh, to to kind of include in the McCurry sound, you know, I wanted to contribute my, you know, and that's one of the beauties of Del McCurry is that he, he wants everybody to bring something to his band, to his sound. He never told me how to play, you know, (laughs) he told me I was out of tune once or twice, but you know, he wants you to, he wants you to contribute to what he's doing. Um, But, one of the important things you have to do when you get to work with somebody like that is you, not only do you have to learn their repertoire, but you have to learn where they're coming from. And the music that Del McCurry grew up on was Bill Monroe and Flat and Scrubs, you have to know that music inside and out because he does. And you have to learn all that, you know, you have to be able to play all those things and, and know exactly, you know, all the little nuances of it and stuff because that's what he did. He he studied all that stuff and that's where his music comes from. So if you want to play that music solidly with him, you have to have that same understanding, you know, as best you can. And so that's what I tried to do. I tried to listen to all the classic bluegrass and learn it all, be around these guys and then bring something of my own interpretation to it. And it included these different influences that I had, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, Let me, let me butt in here a second, because it's clear to me that bluegrass bass has changed. Uh, if you go back to the early stuff, there was a lot more walking going on. I mean, in the real yeah. early stuff, and today it's it's more the one five one five or a lot of one 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 sometimes. And you know, it seems like stylistically it has changed a little bit. But here's the idiotic question I want to ask you: from one bass player to another, do you have you ever like suffered from what? what I call bass player guilt as a as a self-taught bass player where you know you're doing it wrong by the by the you know what I'm saying you ever watch some of these guys yeah. you can spot a classically trained bass player he's playing like let's say you're an A. He's playing first finger, second position, first string. And he's moving that first finger back and forth, and you or mom, mom or Uncle Fred wouldn't do it that way. They might be using a <laughs> ring finger, you know, right. because it's easier. And
2: it's like well, yeah, it all depends upon it all depends upon what level of what level you're playing at with other people. Now I'm a traditional guy. I, I like traditional bluegrass. I'm not really a, what I really like to do is play behind singers. I like to play behind a, a vocal. A melody and a and and lyrics. That's what really drives my playing to where it goes.
0: But but I guess what I'm asking is, does it bother you if you play that A with your first or your second or your ring finger? I mean, do 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 you do you ever watch another bass player and go, God, I I should really. Sometimes I've seen your hand and it looks like that jazz guy classical pose, and at other times it's more like the fist. And I'm just playing, you know. Well, know, that's a, does it bother you? So what I, <laughs> or do you work on that, me I guess. At all. <laughs> Good, me it it doesn't, doesn't bother me, me at all. Either.
2: What, what I tell people is that that, that that bluegrass is a raw form of music. Okay, it's it's very raw and it's in it's in it's most basic essence and creation. It's a raw form of music, you know, much like blues. So, you know, if you look at a video of say somebody like Mance Lipscomb, a great blues slide guitar player, yeah. Yep. Using a pocket knife or a slide, or uh, you know, you watch uh, Mississippi John Hurt play the guitar, and he just sort of created his own style. He's kind of made it up to play music in its rawest form, to get the sound, to try to emulate that sound, to kind of get that feel. You have to play with raw technique. I mean, that's really what it takes to get that sound. You can't do it when you're trying to not make any mistakes. So. Uh, Paul Cowart came over to my house one time when he first lived in Nashville. Great guy and an amazing bass player. And I said, you know, I said, here's the thing, Paul. I said, you spent your entire life uh, not having any bad habits in your playing. And I said, that may hamper what you're trying to go for, which requires a little bit more raw technique. And I said, but your hands and your mind won't allow you to do it because you're you're so focused on playing correctly, you know, technique wise. I'm talking yeah, about technique. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: And he goes, yeah, you know, not really ever think about that. But, but that's, you know, that's what schooling will do to you. Is you are going to teach you how to play in the proper techniques and all this kind of stuff to, to keep from uh, getting tendon. You know, it's, it's mostly a safety thing than than anything else too for tendonitis and creating problems with your muscular muscular uh buildups in your hands and that sort of thing and
0: you know like imagine you're playing the key of b I, I mean i'll see one of these classical guys and he's in the correct position his hand looks beautiful it's like out of a mel bay book or something and moving side to side side to side side to side and i have so many times switched in the middle i mean i might i might be on my first finger back and forth then I, I might midstream switch my ring finger just because my first finger is getting tired. And you don't see them yeah. guys do that. I mean, you know, that's not well, Bach approved or the Samandl book or whatever, you know,
2: it's very rarely that anybody in any other of the genre music has to play as fast as we have to at time. Um, and hold a beat that's you're basically the foundation for everything. So, uh, the same thing happens to me, you know, when I'm playing in B sometimes I, I use my, uh, my middle finger to to make the notes but I don't I don't hold it in that uh, whatever the the index the pinky position where you've got a all whole right. uh, whole step there now all those things I learned by watching other players you know I, when I, also when I was growing up uh, in Scottsdale we had a great performing arts center and I could buy tickets for seven dollars to go see the greatest jazz acts that ever were. And I went, I saw everybody. I saw Sonny Rollins. I saw Barney Kessel and Herb Ellis. And um, I saw Leon Red. I saw all these great, great blues and jazz musicians as a teenager. And I would just watch, you know, and I would just say, okay, well, this looks like what they were doing, you know, and just sort of copy some of those positions and stuff. And I would just go back and forth. Like you say, I'm sort of a hybrid of educated and uneducated. (laughs) player. But most of it is for, you know, you switch for uh, either the tempo or the speed or or or, uh, or the sound, you know, just to get a certain sound. And so, um, uh, you know, I just kind of adapted to the bass more than anything. I never took any formal lessons at all. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, just sort of emulated what I saw and what I heard and tried to create that, you know.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. This is just my opinion, and it's—I know it's shared by thousands and thousands. You get a great sound out of the thing. I'm curious what what I know. You know, the McCurry band was always—I um, I think the perception was that it was kind of a one mic deal, although it was generally a couple of mics. What what is your like? Nor like if you get called for a gig, maybe not even that one. What what is the what all kind of gear do you haul around? Do you have a mic on that well, thing, a pickup? Do you tote an amp around? What all kind of uh, stuff do you tote around with you?
2: When I first started with Dell, uh, we were on separate microphones. And a guy that worked on my bass here in Nashville named George Chestnut, he made me a clamp that goes on the side of my bass that holds the microphone right on the F-hole.
0: Yeah, on the treble
2: side? And uh, Yeah, on the treble side. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I used that for a long time. And that was the secret to my sound because I just used the microphone uh, with Dell, we. I never used an amp, and uh, yeah. and never plugged in or anything. So, but that microphone, because if you put a microphone down in the tailpiece, especially like an SM58, yep. which is a very directional microphone, you have to speak directly into it. it. Doesn't it falls away from the side if you get away from it? It's very focused.
0: But that is the standard method. You take a towel or a piece of foam, shove that 58 the the tailpiece.
2: If you were to point that microphone at the bass, rather than stick it standing straight up in the tailpiece, you're going to increase your volume double, you know. If you put it in front of the sound hole, which is actually where the air comes out of the bass, rather than the top of the bass, there's no sound coming off the top. It all comes out of the F-holes. It's the top that that makes the tone of it, you know. Of course, those are all parts of the tone, but the sound of it actually, where the air is actually moving is coming out of the F-hole. And so for years, I just pointed that microphone right at the F-hole. And people would say, God, I can't believe the sound you get out of that bass. And I'm like, well, you have to have the microphone pointed in the right spot. you know." Yeah,
0: it's a giant air pump. you
2: know. And the sound guy doesn't have any trouble finding it. You know, He just has to either turn it up or turn it down. There's not really any, you know, when you have a microphone going straight up, especially a dynamic mic, a lot of times you have to turn it up so loud that if you just lean over a certain way, you're gonna get feedback. You know, yeah. it's gonna cause a feedback problem. And you don't get that fat uh, bass sound, which I like. I like a fatter, uh, uh, you know, type sound. And uh, so then we went to one microphone. We'd, saw, we'd seen Doyle Lawson do one microphone, and Dale just thought that was the greatest thing ever because he hated monitors. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> we recorded with Bill Borndick one time. Bill Borndick used to run sound back in the early seventies at a lot of the festivals on the East coast. And he said, I was the first one to put monitors on the stage in bluegrass. And Bill said, Oh, so you're the son of a...
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it has caused and, uh, a lot of squeals over the uh, years.
2: Well, I just, you know, it, it's problematic, you know, especially in a festival where every band is different and everybody has different output levels and so it's just you know yeah it's, and really it's, hard it's get, completely get started, different so. in the
0: club scene too i mean if you're playing a loud place so just a slam jam thing monitors are all you get you know because crowds yeah. are making so much racket and stuff uh, but if yeah. you got a listening audience i mean a quiet theater with people that paid 20 bucks to get in there and they're quiet as a mouse you don't need the things that's
2: the way i like well at it. Yeah. That's one thing I really learned uh, in my experience on being on stage, just learning how to listen to each other and forget about how much monitoring you need because really what I need to do depends upon hearing other people around me, you know, basically. So, but when we went to one microphone, uh, we started out putting the mic on the bass. One of the problems with it was that uh, the dynamics shifted because the microphone on the bass created this, uh, uh, constant in the sound. And what I mean was that the bass, no matter where I moved, it was the same. It didn't have that same sort of dynamic that everybody else had moving in and out of the microphone. Right, right. So, you know, when you play on one microphone, we, we learned how to walk into the microphone and you exit to the right in a circular formation so that when you come into solo, it's getting your pickup notes and that sort of thing. And me and Dell would always be off to the left side. And uh but what I found was it sounded better without a microphone on the bass because I was getting too much slap back. We weren't using any monitors and we didn't have any ear monitors at that time to speak of. So we never that would have been helpful. But uh so when the bass is just constant and you're hearing it milliseconds later coming back because it's stronger than anything else in the microphone, it tends to make you feel like you're dragging on stage. Yeah. Or at least everybody else thinks you're dragging. And it creates a timing problem. You're you're standing right next to them and playing them, but the way that they hear it, yeah. because it's over the PA system, is that it's it's it's, it's it sounds late. It doesn't yeah. sound and, right. And you're
0: getting so much bass off the back of the house, and that's not so about. much of the rest.
2: Yeah, it's just yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I just took the microphone off, and I'm and we just started playing around the one mic, and I didn't use a microphone for years. Uh, yeah. We eventually went to two microphones so that we could get more of the. the the backup and that sort of thing. And the split breaks weren't such a dance in front of the one microphone. And that worked out good. And now I think they're up to about five or six mics and they plug the bass in uh, with a, you know, they have a pretty heavy bass sound now uh, with a direct pickup on the bass. And, uh, and that's, you know, know, part of it is just playing on those bigger stages and having a bigger sound. The one on two microphones, it has its limitations, and you can do it on any size stage. It's just that you're going to sound a lot smaller than a lot of other people.
1: Yeah.
2: If, uh, if you sort of stick to that and don't augment it a little bit, I mean, in this modern era, everybody plugs in now. And to me, unfortunately, bluegrass has lost a lot of its tone because everybody wants to play through piezo pickup and because you have to have volume. And as my buddy, David Ferguson says, you want tone or volume. You can't have both. And it's, you know the tones of the instruments has really changed, and that's why nobody longs to have one of these great pre-war instruments like they used to, because you're going to put a pickup in it anyway to get right. the volume that you need. Everything sounds like rubber bands, no matter what. Yeah. So, so getting back to your question, nowadays I carry everything. I still have a, that little mic clamp. I've had it for 30 years. I've lost it like three times and always got it back. <laughs> And uh, I have that with a microphone that's a kick drum microphone, and I point that yep. way at the f Um I've had a couple of different amps. Uh, I, I, I had a big old Ampeg B-18 tube amplifier from the 60s, which was just a killer amplifier, but it weighs about 150 pounds. Right. And uh, so I sold that to a guy that, uh, that uh, lost a bunch of gear in the flood down here in the, in Nashville. A couple years back and he had a bunch of insurance money and he was trying to replace all of his gear. And, uh, I got top dollar for it. I think I paid 300 bucks for it and I, I sold it for about 15 or $1,600. Um, but, uh, currently I'm using a, a Fender rumble 500. It's a,
1: hmm.
2: it's a little Fender amplifier base amp and it's got two 10 inch speakers in it, which I like. I've tried the bigger speaker, like a single 15 or whatever, but to me, they're two, Woofy, they're too bottom heavy for an upright bass. They don't have any enough clarity for it. And um, Fender gave J.T. Gray one that station in for doing a photo shoot down there. And I started playing on it down there. And I loved it. And I was just like, man, I got to get one of these. So I called over to Fender. They have a they have a rep here in Nashville, and uh, and um, they got me a bass amp, and that's that's what around with me now. So I'm ready for anything. I've got the microphone. I've got the amp and the, and that amp actually has a great DI on it. So yeah, so I going to ask it. you. Put it right, yeah. in the, right in the PA system. I you know, I've spent lit, literally thousands of dollars on DIs and tuners and all kinds of crap and pickups. I'm still not satisfied. I'm I'm still searching, you know. Yeah. But uh, you can spend as much as you want and It comes, you know, these, you're still not going to beat the sound of a microphone as far as I'm concerned. And if uh if if you want the great Gauge of what a great microphone on the bass sounds like. Get an album called Oscar Peterson plays requests or we play requests,
1: mm.
2: and that's Ed Fig, Ed Pen and uh, and um, and Ray uh, Ray Brown on bass and oh, Oscar God. Peterson, Man. and the bass on that album just it, it's live. I mean, it just sounds. It's just you'll never get that sound with a pickup. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he's probably got a million dollar bass too, but it helps. Of course, Ray Brown's also the greatest hands that ever were laid on the bass, but. There's a great YouTube uh, video of Ray Brown teaching a master class. And at the very beginning of it, I mean, he just starts playing, just walking the bass. And he goes, You hear what I'm doing here? Boom, 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 He goes, If you can do this with timing and tone, all you have to do is this. No fancy, nothing. He's just the whole time he's walking the bass talking. Boom, 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 boom. He goes, You'll work the rest of your life. <laughs> He goes, I've worked with them all, all the singers. He starts, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, he starts listening to all the singers. Frank Sinatra, he goes, You'll work with all of them. He lists all the horn players that he's with. It's all while he's playing the bass. He goes, You don't need to know anything about that, you know, crazy or anything like this. You just need to th- provide a solid foundation for people to play and sing. He says, And you'll work the rest of your life. And that's yeah. what and that's what I've key that's that's really what I've tried to key in on more than anything. I'm I'm not as good, uh, you know. Um, I work with Rob Ikes, and Trey Hensley, and, and their music is a pretty broad spectrum. You know, it's actually very challenging for me in a lot of ways because I don't, I'm not, I'm not a studious jazz player or anything like that. Those guys play all kinds of stuff, and I just yeah. kind of make up something that I think will fit. And uh, uh, and there's a song that they do. And <laughs> It's just basically two chords, you know, but they just they just rip over the whole thing. It's kind of a, a jam thing, and I was just like, I said, I'm sorry, but I just don't do as well with concepts as I do with melodies, you know, or or songs, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's a bluegrass uh, way. <laughs> and that's just that's that's my, my probably my biggest downfall or my strength, however you want to look at it. You know, one of the things I learned in this business is. Don't worry about what you're not good at because there's somebody else that can do it a hell of a lot better than you, even if you're halfway trying. So figure out what you do well, what your strengths are and really key in on those and promote yourself in that way. And, and you'll get work doing those things, you know?
0: Yeah. That is, um, that is smart advice. I mean, that's kind of like the, the advice your old man will give you, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I,
2: you, can, you can sit around and learn this stuff and, you know, I, I just don't have time, you know, I, I work a lot and, um, I've got a 16-year-old son. I try to spend time with him. I'm yeah. working on my house, and you know, I just do different things. And I, I'm I'm not a, you know, I've been playing for so long that just, uh, I can't become a new player. I'm not going to go back to school or anything. There's always things to learn. Most of what I do is learn new material for a gig or whatever or a recording session. Right. Um, I I love to record because, um, and a lot of, a lot of times you, you're just you have this free will to uh, you know apply yourself to a to a melody and, and make something happen with it that is you know in uh copacetic with the other musicians that are there and that's I love that part of it. Well that's very creative. Yeah that
0: is the, the cool thing about playing the bass is you you get the opportunity to not be up front. I mean your job is completely different than say a mandolin player. Your job yeah, I, is just to stand back there and make everybody sound as good as you can and it's there's not a spotlight on you.
2: You got to right. give everybody a solid foundation to do what they do, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's it's not for everybody, you know. It's, it's a calling, you know. It's much like uh, being a catcher on a baseball team, you know. You <laughs> yeah. You, it's really the hardest job out there. You're
0: gonna you know? eat a lot of
2: dirt, and, yeah. And, and and you're in control of everything, you know. You're in control of the game. You're calling the pitches. You're 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 you know, you're directing traffic out there. And it's the same playing the bass in the band, you know, you're usually the guy that, that, uh, <laughs> has the band and knows where we're going and knows what time we're supposed to be on.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's
2: all those, all, all that minutia, you know, bass players kind of are all in that world, you know, where they, you know, whereas the, uh, the other instruments tend to be, you know, it's, it, it, it's just a different process of thinking and where, where you're at on stage and, you know, all those things. It's just a different, you know, it takes a certain type of personality to to take on the calling of a bass player.
0: Yeah. I wrote a little, um, I wrote a little instruction book, how to play the bass, uh, book called, um, well, it's called my bass instruction course. And I spent a couple of pages talking about that exact concept of, you know, you gotta really be interested in the total thing, not just your thing to succeed as a bass player, but I want to shift gears. You don't you have to comment on that. I want to shift gears to my final question for you, because you have been so gracious with your time here. I want to ask you kind of an off-the-wall question, and I'm one of these guys that I think I can learn a lot about somebody if I know what kind of animals they own. I want to know, you know, like, do you have a dog, a cat, chickens, a llama, you know, what kind of critters? <laughs> I mean, and I might, I'm asking this because I'm going to just fess up and tell you I have two donkeys, uh, I think seven or eight chickens, two cats, uh, a Great Pyrenees, a female. And we just got, just a week ago, a male Great Pyrenees pup. And that thing's wow. crying all night long. And, oh, it's, it's so great, though. And the donkeys and all this stuff. I'm just curious, what kind of... And now that you got an established household and you're not moving around all over the country quite as much, tell me about your critters. I'm sure you have something, even if it's a gerbil or, a, you know, like a tank of uh, fish. I had,
2: I had gerbils. I had gerbils when I was a sort of a pre teenager. Did uh, you have the
0: habit trail thing they used to run through? Oh, yeah. And drive oh, yeah. your oh, yeah. parents crazy then, in the middle of the night? Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Then, they, asked, then they, they started eating it after a while. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't have uh, any pets uh, right now. No uh, pets. I'm uh, surprised. I'm allergic to most dander, which is like horses and yeah. cats and dogs and all that kind of stuff. How about that? And so uh, when I got married, uh, my wife at the time had a cat, and I said, you know, you're not bringing that cat with you because I'm allergic to cats. And so <laughs> she she had to give the cat up. You know. Oh for man, me. she and that's then,
0: true love. I mean, most I guess, women well, would give for, up the man.
2: It was for a while um, and then uh, about uh, well I've been we've been divorced about four years now. We're still very good friends and all because over of the there. cat, I'm sure <laughs> just over there last night having steak with them, but uh, uh my son and she and my son got a dog about I don't know two three years ago and it's uh it's a Labrador uh, it looks like a Labrador maybe a little bit of a pit bull mix huh. and right. uh right. anyway, this dog absolutely loves me. And he, when I go over there, he is at the door, ready to go and fetch with me. I'll, he'll, you know. Yeah, I, that's that lab coming he, out. He'll fetch for me for hours if I let him. And uh, and so when I open the car door, he jumps right in. He's ready to go anywhere. With me. <laughs> so he's kind of like, he's uh, like, what, what was, you know, what I say about grandchildren, you know, I like him and then I get to give him back.
1: <laughs> that kind of thing. yeah well that's not uh, that so, like
0: the perfect pet you know bye so, dog
2: <laughs> i love tommy you know tommy loves me we were watching a movie last night and this dog was just you know he wanted to, he wouldn't snuggle with anybody but me uh <laughs> and uh i don't know what it is about me and this dog but he's just crazy about me and and uh so that's my dog fix as i go over there and i don't have to have the allergic reaction too much because i just don't i don't have to Live in the same uh, house with him, but uh, right, right. but I, I, you know, he's he's a great dog, and uh even my ex said, she said, "Well, he's your dog too." I go, "No, he's not." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, oh, for all intents and purposes, he, he acts like it. So,
0: well, it's hard to have pets when you're touring and stuff like that. I, I do remember the uh front porch string band back in the '80s. Claire and Larry and uh, the, whoever was playing with them at the time would ride around. They had this weird little, like little mongoose critter or something. I forget what it was called. It wasn't a mongoose, but some kind of weird animal that traveled with them back then. And it was the center of attention at their record table. This crazy little ferret or something. I don't know what huh. it was,
2: but it is like Jimmy Martin's to... like Jimmy Martin's raccoon that he used to have on a leash. <laughs> I didn't know about that. Oh my God.
0: Well, you know, I told you in the run up to this interview that I think it would be great if you started your own podcast and I suggested that you should call it Jimmy Martin's couch. Uh, and I, (laughs) you got so many stories, uh, you know, if you ever take a notion of, you know, doing your own podcast, yeah, I I highly encourage it.
2: I've I've, people uh, asked me about that from time to time. I've had it couple people mentioned it to me but, well uh, I'm not asking you know,
0: I, I'm demanding I think it's <laughs> it's time you got a ton of stories and you you, you know a lot of folks I, you know, you
2: know. I'm very fortunate I got to Nashville at a time when uh, as Eddie Eddie Stubbs once described it the beginning of the end of the Golden age of country music yeah and that includes bluegrass and that includes bluegrass you know I got here in 1989 and you know the first time I ever went to the Grand Ole Opry Minnie Pearl and Roy Acuff Cuff opened the show. They were still working together since 1939. They'd been there for yeah. 50 years, you know? And I got to see that, and, and uh, I got to play with Bill Monroe. And I I actually played Bill Monroe's last road show that he ever did on the road.
0: Yeah, you and, spilled um, coffee on his hat, I heard.
2: Yeah, I spilled a little coffee on his hat. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I just got to be around all these guys. I uh, worked with Jesse McReynolds after I left Dell. I played some shows with him and just... You know, when you get around these guys uh, like that that came from that era of survival, you know, they, they 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 couldn't give it up because they had to survive. You know, they did what they had to do to survive. And, um, you know, I was just recently over at Sonny Osborne's house uh, around his birthday. He spent four hours at his kitchen table <laughs> with uh, Ronnie and Rob and Larry Stevenson and, we all just told stories and it was just an amazing afternoon. And you realize this guy, you know, he's just like, us. he started when he was 14 years old with Bill Monroe and was just, he done it, did it his entire life, you know? And, and, uh, do
0: you read, do you read his column on bluegrass today? His, Oh yeah. yeah. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. He's
2: mentioned me actually last couple of weeks. He's mentioned me a few times, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, uh, Sonny to me is, uh, he's an amazing guy. You know, he's just, um, so innovative and creative on his instrument. And as a vocalist, I think he's probably one of the greatest harmony singers that ever ever was. And of course it came natural because Bobby's one of the greatest singers of all time, you know? Uh, I think
0: he is the um, greatest
2: singer of all time. It's amazing. Just amazing. Well, you know, the first time I ever played on the Grand Opry was with the Osborne brothers and, uh, and uh, they, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah, it it's a so He reveres They revered the Grand Ole Opry. It made their. It made their career basically. You know, and um, they, um, they. If you're playing for the first time on the Grand Ole Opry, they want to make sure you're as nervous as you can possibly be <laughs> and uncomfortable, <laughs> just like they were. Hmm. And uh, so the first show went pretty good. And uh, we got through it and whatever. You know, one one song or whatever. So then there's this long lag between the first show and the second show. Back then they did two shows on Friday night and two shows on Saturday night, and uh, which is a pretty good paycheck even for a side guy if you get uh, four slots in a weekend. You know yeah. that's that's why a lot of those jobs for those Opry bands were um, they didn't they didn't change very often because uh, between working and playing the Opry, it was basically a full time job. You know.
1: Yeah,
0: got
2: to pay the uh, rent. Unlike unlike somebody in a bluegrass band who doesn't have any work for three weekends, the next three weekends, those guys would always play the Opry if they were, if they were home, you know? And, uh, so you'd be getting a paycheck one way or another, but anyway, the second show comes along. So we're warming up in the dressing room and, and, uh, and they're just playing tune after tune, you know, uh, one song after another. And, and, uh, all of a sudden, over the intercom here, Osborne Brothers to the stage, please. Osborne Brothers to the stage. <laughs> and uh, so they start to go out the door towards the stage. And I said, what, what, what are they going to do? And uh, Terry Elder said, uh, he said, what are we going to do? Chase goes, ah, I guess we'll just do that nine-pound hammer, which is the last thing we had played. And uh, mm. he, he, so he says, uh, nine-pound hammer. And then he looks at me and he goes, you know the solo on that, right, dude? <laughs> and I said, what? He goes, yeah, it's got a bass solo. He said, you'll know when it comes up. <laughs> uh, oh great! And of course, it's in B, which is uh oh, you know God. next to C sharp is the worst key to have to have a solo in because it's just you know there's hardly any open notes that you can play. And mm. so anyway, we get out there on stage, and back then they had the full uh, Opry staff band backing them. They had Leon Rhodes on electric guitar and how uh, 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 steel player. Um, oh shit, I can't remember his name. Uh, and then uh, you know they had the full full Opry treatment behind him. So Sonny's out there, and of course, everybody gets solo, mandolin, fiddle, banjo, electric guitar, piano, uh, steel guitar, and then he goes, bass. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, your first reaction to uh, when somebody says bass solo, and you're not even ready for it, is you go into the boogie-woogie
1: pattern.
2: <laughs> you know, uh, that'll work. And so I started doing that, and uh, and all of a sudden I hear I hear this little sort of golf clap build up from the crowd for the bass solo, and Sonny turns and he goes, "Play another one." <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me two solos that night, and uh, I don't know, it was probably horrendously bad. Nice I have a tape of it somewhere, some someplace somewhere, and in a van. In I got a cassette out of it. But <laughs> uh, you know, that was my first experience. Uh, with them and and, you know that was what he wanted he wanted you to be as uncomfortable as you could possibly be because that's the way you're supposed to feel on the stage of the grand lottery and he's right you know i still love going out there it's it's changed a lot through the years but uh, uh i still love it i still love playing on that stage and just being out there and the people that are there and what that institution just stands for and what it's built and what it's created over the years you know And just to have the opportunity to go out there and play once in a while, to me, is just a great honor. I love it.
0: Well, I can tell you, uh, all of us out here in the bluegrass world are extremely jealous of you and the opportunities you've carved out. And and i got to tell you, just for the listeners and for myself, thanks for doing this because we've been talking for an hour and 45 minutes. This goes down in history as the longest Grass Talk Radio podcast ever, and and <laughs> I, I'm concerned. I mean, I would like to go on for about four or five hours, but I don't know how much disk space I have on my recorder. So we may have to pull it here. But I just well, want to tell you a, thanks. We could
2: do a, We could do a, a part two down the line sometime.
0: Well, I think we should. I, I think that would be a blast because I know we haven't even we haven't. Barely scratched the surface, but is there anything at all you want to plug or get a website or anything at all before we we do yank the the cord out of the wall?
2: The latest thing that I've done that's out now is I made a record with this guy named Sturgill Simpson, and uh, Ah, some of us in bluegrass may be familiar with him, but mostly he's known as kind of uh, you know it's hard to describe what he is. He's for lack of better terminology, uh, alt country. uh, He's a country songwriter and singer but he kind of carved his own path and he's really a creative, very creative individual and creative artist.
0: He's super like, super like into the singing. I mean, he is like, just like 180% into like how he sings. It's just, it's interesting yeah. to watch. He's just like,
2: yeah, he's incredible. Really and, intense. Uh, and, uh, this, the last record that he made was this, uh, just this crazy hard rock album. that's mostly keyboard driven, and he teamed up with these guys from Japan, and they made a full anime movie <laughs> about it. You know, which is like a, oh a modern uh, animation uh, you know Japanese animation. Yeah. And then uh, he, he he got out of his record deal. He had this incredible record deal where he could do whatever he want as an artist. You know, and he made uh, two or three records, uh, all very different. But he won a Grammy for the best country album one year, and he didn't even get. invited to the cma awards and so i don't know if you remember this but he he outside the cma awards he was busking on the sidewalk with guitar case open and he had his grammy sitting in the case and uh he's out there and somebody finally recognized him and took his picture and it went all over the internet became a viral internet sensation anyway he's kind of an outlaw he's a he's an outspoken guy and he has a lot of integrity in his music and, and and he cares about it and uh, um, anyways he kind of came out of bluegrass he, a lot of his songs were written when he was kind of toying with the bluegrass band being in a bluegrass band and then uh, you know as he developed as an artist later on these, these songs came out mostly in a sort of country or a hard rock country sort of sound and he decided to go back and re-record them all his bluegrass songs and a guy who's like one of my buddies, best buddies, is uh, one of his producers named David Ferguson. He did all the Johnny Cash's uh, records and worked for Jack Clement for years here in Nashville. And um, he's just a, is an icon in the music here in Nashville. And uh, so he assembled this band with Sturgill to go and make this record, uh, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. It's called Cutting Grass Volume One. <laughs> and... Um, we, we recorded it back in June when nobody had anything going on. It's uh, Stuart Duncan on fiddle, uh, Sierra Hull on mandolin, yeah. uh, Tim O'Brien on guitar, a guy named Mark Howard on guitar, who may not be familiar to a lot of people, but Mark made most of John Hartford's records over the years and played with John Hartford. And uh, was just a tremendous, talented uh, composer and arranger, uh, recording engineer, carpenter, guitar player, mandolin player, banjo player. Uh, just an all-around sort of guy that can, can do it all, and uh, and then uh, Scott Vessel on banjo, yeah. And uh, I saw and YouTube. Miles,
0: oh, go ahead, go ahead. And
2: Miles Miller on the, just a snare and brushes, like a sort of a Jimmy Martin setup.
0: Yeah, I saw a YouTube video of you guys playing at the Station Inn, and I saw you in the back there, and I was just like, "Who's next?" I mean, it was like, "What a lineup."
2: yeah so we, we were on colbert last week and uh uh we taped, uh we did the we we performed the song at the station in we used their live stream setup to re, to record the song okay and then they split they split the audio off and they took the audio to a studio and remixed it for the yeah, television that, that's
0: what i saw I and guess. then yeah. and then
2: synced it back up and it was on colbert so basically it was like a it was very cool it was like a station in live stream on CBS. <laughs> in every every you know potentially every home in America, which is a pretty good lick for bluegrass music.
0: Yeah, man,
2: everybody's and everybody's standing uh, up there. And the band is just you know, I mean, it's just these guys are just so good. And um, anyway, the, we made a record. We, and he enjoyed the session so much, he said, "Let's do it again next week." And so we <laughs> came back for three days the next week, and we cut um, I think twenty or twenty two songs, and that's what the album is: uh, It's twenty two songs of his back catalog.
0: Well, how do um, people
2: get it? Is it out? I mean, where do they get yeah, it? Yeah, you can get it. It's on Apple Music. You know, anywhere you get music, you can get it. Uh, it's, uh, it's on CD. They also released uh, several different versions of vinyl of it. There's a uh, And the vinyl, you can only get through independent record stores. You have to special order it through them. You can get it on Amazon on vinyl, but it's just a standard black vinyl. Uh, but it's a double album on vinyl. So what he did was uh, <laughs> the cover is him on a John Deere lawnmower. Oh, Cut man. grass.
1: That's cool. And
2: uh, he did uh, he did the vinyl in uh, John Deere green and yellow. So one out one of the records oh, really? is yellow and one of the records is green. Ah. You can only order that through independent record stores. Uh, but Amazon has a regular black vinyl. And then he did a special one for people from Kentucky, which is all blue. The cover's blue. The record's blue. <laughs> everything's Kentucky blue. And I don't know how to get one of those, but I think those are already sold out. I'm not sure. There was like a limited pressing that he did on that. That's funny. And, uh, but and, you know, digitally, it's everywhere. You know, you can get it, uh, Spotify, and, and it's and it's. I mean, it's done remarkably well. It's been number one on Spotify for. It was that's that's the number one spot there for several days, and uh, he rang a lot of number one bells with it. So I hope it's getting some air airplay too. I don't I don't really check in with the blue gas. Sorry, we'll see what this uh, next chart looks like that comes out next month, but. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, that's the latest thing that I've done, and uh, we're hoping you know if 2021 turns around a little bit, maybe we'll get out to some of these outdoor events and festivals. I don't know about the indoor it's going to, you know, much is going to happen there. But yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll I think see. I think the big outdoor festivals are going to find a way to to bring a you know bring the music to the stage again. So if that's the case, we'll probably be out there playing some of the big major festivals this year. I expect so.
0: Yeah. But that's the
2: latest project they made. And then on the flip of that, I just made a a record with a guy named Jeremy Stevens, who is uh, uh, the banjo and guitar player for a a real traditional bluegrass band called High Fidelity. They're based here in Nashville. uh, Jeremy and Karina Stevens. And they are just like, uh, they're the walking history of of rare and obscure bluegrass Hmm. and gospel music. They're just incredible singers and players and i just i love playing with them and, and uh, we just um basically cut all the tracks for jeremy's solo record and uh he had don reno's uh herringbone and don reno's banjo there he cut a couple of don reno songs on those instruments it was kind of neat and uh so some of the stuff they're working on and I uh, actually just started a project with uh rob and trey we recorded a couple of songs uh started that and then uh back in the winter back in january we actually cut a couple of songs with uh uh, Taj Mahal, and uh, wow. it it it's. Hopefully, we get to complete that record because it it was just fantastic working with Taj, yeah. and uh, we we did the IBMA Awards with him. You know, we did a track with him, and they they um, edited in a video of him playing along with us is pretty cool on the IBMA Awards.
0: Well, look, I am so, gonna... the Music
2: is going
0: out in all directions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, I mean, you're, you're into so many things. I understand why you don't have any pets right now, uh, but I just want to tell you, thank you. Uh, we have set a new record as far as time goes, and I am going to hold you to that. I'm going to call you in the spring or early spring and just okay. kind of see what's cooking. And we'll, we'll get some more of these stories. in I, I seriously, thank you for, on behalf of the listeners of grass talk radio, thank you for all your time. And I hate well, I to wind this up because I mean, really, I feel like we could go another two hours, but I'm not so sure the recorder will hold it. So anyway, thanks a bunch, yeah. Mike. I mean, really,
2: well, I appreciate the opportunity, you know, and I, and the invitation, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have anything to promote. You know, I'm not, ai don't <laughs> have any instructional material. I don't have any books, records or anything like that, but the, every time I do something like this, I'm like, gosh, I need to have some way to, yeah, you, need product. you know, uh, at least a you know, t-shirt, you know,
0: the Mike Bub monetizing fan
2: this somehow or another. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's a- I've know i toyed with the idea of doing a record over through the years. I've got several lists of things, uh, you know, all these different things. And, and, uh, so I haven't taken advantage of my time off for in that direction. Like I probably should have, but, uh, uh, maybe, maybe in the coming few months, I'll, I'll get something together and, and, uh, and
0: we'll be able to talk about it next time. Yeah, well, like I say, here, you be counting on that. We're going to do it again. I mean, I, I think we've gone this long. We should definitely continue it here in the future, and maybe you can come okay. up with some product. Maybe, you know, at least come up with some stickers to slap on your case yeah. or something, the Mike Bub fan club or something. Keychain.
2: Everybody likes Yeah, key yeah,
0: keychains are good, <laughs> and, you know, those fridge magnets are always a big seller. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, thank you, Mike.
2: All right, Brad. Thank you. Take care. Talk to
0: you (laughs) later, Mike. Okay. I I hope all of you enjoyed that as much as I did. I swear we could have gone on all day. Amazing. It's just a guy like Mike is just full of 10,000 stories. You know, I encouraged him, he should start his own podcast and just tell all these stories. And if he ever decides to do that, I will encourage all of you to listen to his show too. Mike, uh, thanks for doing it. And uh, thank all of you for listening. I want to also thank the patrons of the show. Those are those people who chip in a little every month to keep the show going and growing over on Patreon. And if you want to do the same and keep this thing going... Just go to patreon.com slash laird, And also, I want to encourage any of you, regardless of your skill level, to scope out my instructional material over on bradleylaird.com. You'll find a ton of free stuff, and you will also find my video lessons and my ebooks and various courses. And thank you to each and every one of you for listening to this record-setting in terms of time length episode and especially thanks to mike bub what a cool dude and uh hopefully we'll get him back on here in the spring and catch up with some more of these crazy stories anyway thanks for listening everybody and i'll be back and talk to you in the next episode